So I thought we would take a series and talk about prophets and prophecy. And there are so many, I mean, it's such a big field. You know, the, what the world thinks a prophet is, is a little different than what biblical prophecy really is. And we also just don't, I think, really realize the breadth of what prophecy is and what the prophets did. And I wanna look at historically, what did the prophets do? What was God doing in throughout, oh, probably a thousand years of history we'll be looking at in this series. And then I wanna apply it to today, and that won't be hard because you'll see that some of the same things that are happening in the world today were happening before. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun, and that is really true. But let's start by asking this question. What is a prophet? And so when you think of that, and you just ask that to anybody, you might say the guy on, the, on your right is a guy named Nostradamus. You can see he lived 500 years ago. Why is Nostradamus famous? Because he wrote a book called Prophecies in the 1500s. And today, many, many people read that and say, oh my goodness, he was a real prophet. He predicted all of these things that have happened, World War II and the American Revolution and all of that. Now, caveat, they all say that knowing what already happened. Nobody that lived in his time thought that he was a prophet, but now it looks like he was a prophet. So we sometimes think about prophets as people who accurately predict the future, that a prophet is someone that makes a prediction about the future. Or the young lady in the upper left, we think of prophets as someone who's warning you, rebuking you, telling you if you don't get busy and do something, bad things are going to happen. And that's true, what, that prophets do that sometimes. So that's another view of a prophet. Probably the biggest uh, view we have and the most prevalent idea in most people's minds of a prophet is someone that warns you of impending doom. I don't know why you don't ever see prophets that are warning you of impending joy. You know, the, how many prophets are holding like, you will win the lottery? You know, no, it's like the end of the world is near. But that's kind of what we think about when we think about what is prophecy and what are prophets. The Bible has a little bit different view. This is a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. It's about Moses. The traditional dating for Moses is about 1400 years before Christ, BC. And here's what the scripture says. And it, the reason I quote this is so you listen to the word prophet and how it's used. The Lord your God, Moses told the Israelites, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is, by the way, uh, regarded as a messianic prophecy. And the Jews thought that uh, before and during Jesus' time. And of course, Christians also think this is a messianic prophecy. But just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this fire anymore, the Lord said to me, they're right in what they are spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet 
who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there are interesting clues here as to what does the Bible think a prophet is. Well, somebody like Moses, what did Moses do? Moses was an average guy. God said, I have a job for you. I want you to go speak to Pharaoh. You're gonna lead my people out of captivity. Then I'm gonna give you uh, the covenant with them. I'm gonna make a covenant with these people. And remember, Moses was reluctant to do that. He said, I'm no leader. And God said, it's not about you being a leader. I'm not a good speaker. God said, it's not about you being a good speaker. I'm not picking you because you're an eloquent speaker. I just need you to tell them what I am telling you. So prophecy in the Bible is not about a person's abilities. My ability to predict the future or my ability to predict how the stock market's going to go. Prophecy in the Bible and a prophet is someone who's a mouthpiece, if you will, for God. Someone who's a spokesperson. Think of it more like, a, and not exactly like a press secretary, but the point is the press secretary doesn't make policy. The press secretary explains what the president has done or the policies that the president has made. Well, that's what biblical prophecy is. Someone who speaks the things that God commands them to speak. The uh, idea in general, so then what kind of things are they speaking? They're gonna speak to the people whatever God wants. Sometimes that's encouragement. Sometimes it's rebuke, you're going the wrong direction. Sometimes it's persevere, trust me, I'm with you. Sometimes it's prediction of the future. This is going to happen. A Messiah is going to come. So if you think about what is prophecy, prophecy is whatever God wants to say to his people. And that's a broad range of things. And so when we think about biblical prophets, we think about someone, think about someone like Moses. He was there to tell the people, to tell Pharaoh, to tell the world what God wanted said, not what Moses wanted said. Well, before we dive into it and look at the prophets, um, and I wanna to talk to you about some of the prophets that I wanna talk about in this series. I wanted to, it just occurred to me, I don't think I've ever talked to you about this, but in the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible, which is what Christians call the Old Testament. Why do they call it the Old Testament? Because the New Testament, the New Covenant is new, that's the Old Covenant. That's the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. The New Covenant is the one that's made in the blood and the body of Christ, right? So we call that the Old Testament, Jews don't. They, I'll tell you exactly what they call it here in just a second. So I thought it would be interesting to contrast just a little bit the Jewish Bible or the Jewish Old Testament. If you pick up a Jewish Bible, Old Testament, first of all, has exactly the same information in it, exactly the same books in it that your Old Testament does in the Bibles that you will read. But it's not in the same order. They organize it just a little bit differently. So these are the order of the books in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament as the Jews. They divide it into three parts, the Torah, which is the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The bulk of that is the law of Moses. The 613 commandments, the covenant 
that God made with the Israelite people on Mount Sinai. And so it's called the law. Then you have, this is a Hebrew word, nevi'im, and that's plural, and it means the prophets. The singular is nabi, a prophet. And so you look at this and you'll say, wait a minute, that's not what I think of as prophets, but this is the list of books that are in the section called the prophets. And then there's a third section called the ketavim, and that word just means the writings. And you'll look at that and you'll see the books. You're gonna recognize all these books because it's it's the same information in Jewish Bible and your Old Testament, but they are in a little different order. You remember in the New Testament, and when you read the New Testament, occasionally you will hear Jesus say, it is written in the law and the prophets. Or the, the law, you have the law and the prophets. What he means is, you have the Old Testament. And they, the Jews, take this as an acronym. So you have Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim. So you have the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and you will see a Jewish Bible like that, Tanakh. Or sometimes, I just made the capitals and the small ones so you can see the acronym in there. Or you will see it like this. So if you go to Barnes and Noble and you say, I want a Jewish Bible, just ask them for a Tanakh. That's what they call it. Why do they call it that? Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim. The law, the prophets, the writings. You'll notice that some of the books are combined. We have a first and second Kings. They just mush them together. Same with uh, Samuel, same with Chronicles. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They just put them together. And they actually kind of read like they're one book. Uh, So same information organized a little bit differently, but the writings of Joshua and Judges and Samuel would have been considered prophetic writing. I tell you that, A, just because I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but B, you don't think of that as prophecy, but I want you to expand your mind a little bit of what is prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking to his people through others. And I have an agenda for that because when we get to modern application, you're gonna realize, wait a minute, prophecy is still going on now. Don't misquote me. I don't mean there are people out there that are talking about the end of the world. I'm talking about a way bigger idea of what prophecy is. So they think that uh, all these books are prophetic. So what does your Old Testament look like? Probably pretty much know this. We divide it differently. Same books, we just divide it differently. We have the Torah, the Law of Moses, but then it's just functionally, you'll see that the history books are all put together. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they go right through history and they tell you the story of God interacting with his people. It's pretty much historical. Then you have the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Those are considered wisdom kind of literature. So they're just grouped together. This is a little bit arbitrary, but this is what your Old Testament looks like. Then you have the major prophets. They were the best sellers. And you have the minor prophets. They didn't sell as much, so they lumped them all together. There are 12 minor prophets. That's a name we gave to them. In the Jews, they're called the 12. 12 prophets whose books we have. So you get the minor prophets, major prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, 
There's a little book called Lamentations tucked in there that Jeremiah wrote. It's kind of the whining of Jeremiah, but it's tucked in with the major prophets. So you get Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And so in, that's what our Bible looks like. And so we have a little different view. Just the organization gives you the view that prophets are those special people. But in the Jewish Bible, the reason I wanted to show you that, the book of Judges, book of Joshua, what we would consider historical, they consider that's prophetic, that's God speaking to his people, right? So I wanna just expand our idea of that a little bit. So there are major prophets, minor prophets, again, that's an arbitrary distinction. There are writing prophets and non-writing prophets. So for example, over here in 1 Kings, you have uh, part of that is the story of a guy named Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, he just didn't write a book. And then Isaiah, he's also a prophet, and of course, his, um, he wrote down the things that God had given him. So th it, there are many, many prophets in the Bible that didn't write something down. So I wanna talk to you a little bit just about the organization of the biblical prophets. First of all, just a couple of scriptures that kind of confirm what we're saying. Listen to, second, this is in the New Testament, 2 Peter. We have the prophetic word or prophetic teachings or prophetic servants more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Um, he says, we know that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What's he saying? Prophets and prophecy are just you saying what God told you to tell people, okay? And for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Oh, there are a lot of messages that were produced by the will of people but prophets are people that speak from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in James, uh, the suffering and patience of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So it's one thing for me to speak in the name of Terry, which is what I do most of the time, but when I'm reading scripture, I'm telling you what God said. That's nothing about me, I'm just telling you what God said, and you do that with each other as well. So let's talk about the prophets, I put a chart on your handout, I realize the printing's not big, and you can spend some time with that later, but I wanted to give you a little bit of history because we're gonna talk about prophets. We'll talk about some New Testament prophets, but mainly from the time period of the three great kings. So there was a time period when all of Israel, everything on the map on the right, forget Israel and Judah, that whole thing was one country. That was under Saul and David and Solomon. It was all called Israel. But one of the key things that happened, so from the time that Solomon died, so 930 BC, all the way down to 722 in the north, and all the way down to 586, so these are BC, remember they go the other direction. In 930 BC, Solomon died and he has a unified kingdom. His son, let us just say he was an underachiever. And so there was a civil war that came up and the nation of Israel split in two. And the north got to keep the name Israel. Why? Because 10 of the tribes, remember there were 12 tribes, 10 of the tribes lived in the north. And the bottom, the southern part, took the name Judah. Why? Because there were two tribes and the biggest one was Judah, the tribe of Judah. So from 930, all the way down until the Assyrians conquered this northern kingdom in 722, a couple hundred years later. 
and the Babylonians conquered this southern kingdom several hundred years later in 586 BC. But between that two or 400 years, you have what's called a divided kingdom. And that's why on that chart, there's a, a right and a left. So you have a king in Israel, you have a king in Judah. And God sent prophets to both of those nations. And I think that little chart, I hope will help you as you read the Bible, and let's say you pick up the, the book of Joel in the Old Testament. You can look at that chart and you can see about when Joel lived. You can see, was he prophesying or was he speaking to the northern kingdom, Israel, or was he speaking to the southern kingdom? So I wanted to give you that chart to take some of the mystery out of when these prophets lived and, and where and who to whom they were speaking. This is an interesting little map and it just shows you where some of the prophets are from. And so I'll just let you digest that a little bit. This came from the ESV Bible Atlas and it just takes some of the prophets, some of which are writing prophets, some of which are not. So you may not recognize all those names, but they're all in the Old Testament as speaking God's word. And you can see they come from all over the place. And so he really didn't have anything to do. It's not like you went to prophet college and they all graduated from Jerusalem Prophecy College, you know, and then became prophets. God called people all over the place geographically. He also called people from all different walks of life. So for example, Isaiah, very well-known prophet, was actually of the aristocracy. He was, he was upper middle class, you know, or upper class person. And he spent most of his messages that God gave him were to the kings, particularly King Hezekiah. And so he had a ministry to the king and he was an advisor in the government and he was high born. But look at a, uh, somebody else like Amos. He was born uh, outside Bethlehem in Jerusalem, near, very near Bethlehem. He was a farmer he, and his message was to the people. So he was moving around preaching and he would give the same message over and over, but God said to this people, repent, for example. Well, he would go from village to village to village and he would preach that. And of course, he also wrote it down, what God had told him to preach and to teach and to tell the people. But I wanted you to realize that sometimes these prophets ministered to the king, sometimes they ministered to the people. They took a message to the people. Sometimes they were uh, a high socioeconomic class, sometimes they were a low socioeconomic class. In other words, prophecy and prophets really have less to do with the education of the individual, the eloquence of the individual, has everything to do with this is the person that God wants to use for this particular message in time, okay? I hope you're starting to make some connections to today as well. New Testament, that's true, and I would argue that that's still true today, that God is still working in the world not in, in the sensational way that he's gonna raise up a prophet that's gonna talk more about the end of the world. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do think God chooses people to take his message to certain places. <clears throat> Great example, to give you one, missionaries. People that, and we don't use the word prophet for that. I just wanna say it is sort of the same kind of activity. Some people feel called to take God's message to certain people groups. That's, God calls people today to do things like that, just like he always has. Question. Was there an official group that certified or approved the prophets? How did people decide to recognize a prophet who was calling himself a prophet? That's a great question. Was there a certification? 
to become a prophet? And how would you know if somebody was a prophet? That's a real issue. There was no, well, I shouldn't say there was no certification. There were indications sometimes from God as to who was an approved prophet and who was not. And you'll see that in the stories I wanna tell you in just a minute, because I wanna look at the qualifications of some of the prophets. That's what this lesson is really about is, what, what were some of the qualifications of somebody to be a prophet? So there's no certification. There were also false prophets. I'll give you a great example of this. So right before Judah was destroyed, I'm gonna go back one. So looking now at the Southern Kingdom, so in 586 BC, the Babylonians from up north show up and they are besieging Jerusalem and King Nebuchadnezzar has surrounded Jerusalem and he's gonna conquer Jerusalem. We know that now. At the time, Jeremiah was telling the king, you need to surrender to the Babylonians because they are doing God's will to humble this nation. And some people are gonna be carried off to Babylon and this is all part of God's plan. So he's telling them what God told him. There were many other prophets in the administration who were saying, no, that's not true. Jeremiah is sapping the will of our people to fight. And in fact, they put him in jail and threatened to kill him and told him to shut up because he was uttering unpatriotic stuff and he was keeping people from fighting. And he's like, if you fight, a lot of you are gonna die. You need to go with the will of God. So back to this question, it wasn't always easy to know who was speaking for God in this situation. And what you would tend to do is the same thing you would do today. Remember in the New Testament, it talks about false teachers. It says there's some teachers that are gonna come and tell you God said this, and that's not true. How do you know? We study the scriptures and we say, is this consistent with what God said? They could do the same thing. They could go to the law of Moses, by the time the Babylonians were there, they could read the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, and they were expected to say, wait a minute, what you're saying doesn't jive with the scriptures, but there were false prophets, and it was, a, it was an issue. There were prophets that spoke for their own self-interest to make themselves rich or to gain fame or whatever. So the same problems that you have today happened then. So that's a very good question. So there was no certification although occasionally God demonstrated, and I'll tell you that in the stories in just a minute, that this guy's a real prophet, okay? Well, let's jump in and I wanna look at three prophets. And what I wanna answer is, what is the number one job requirement to be a prophet? So if any of you are aspiring prophets, this is the first qualification you need on your resume. And I wanna tell you three stories, and none of these prophets ever wrote anything down. So just to give you, I want to, in this series, we're going to look at a lot of interesting things that happen, but I want to introduce you to a lot of different prophets. None of these prophets wrote anything down. Let's go to the time of King David. David was king from 1010 BC, about a thousand years before Christ, till 970. He was king for about 40, for, well, he wasn't about, he was king for 40 years. <clears throat> and if you remember, this incident occurred after God had blessed him and he conquered a lot of territories. 
He sent his armies off to fight, but in the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and they were go battle the Ammonites, etc. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his uh, couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and asked about the woman, and they said, this is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and they lay together. Now she had, never mind. So then, he, uh, then she returned to her house, and then she conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You may remember the rest of this story. If not, go to that part of the Bible and read it. It's, it's amazing this story's even in the Bible. So David has an affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He decides, I better get her husband here because I need to cover this up. This is like, this is Watergate before Watergate ever happened, okay? This is like major cover-up. He's like, I need to get him home and so they'll think it's his baby. Well, it doesn't work out. And you know what he ends up doing? He ends up sending him back with a note to his general saying, make sure he gets killed in battle. And he does. And so then he says, wow, that's really unlucky. I think I'm gonna marry Bathsheba. And so he's trying to cover this whole thing up. Well, there's a prophet at that time, one who, uh, prophet Nathan, who was an advisor to King David. And you may remember this scene. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I want you to remember this. It's not like Nathan didn't like what happened and he went to talk to his buddy David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, there were two men in a city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had, oh, tons of sheep. Poor man only had one. And he brought it up and he, uh, it grew up with him and with his children and it used to eat from the, his table. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, but he was unwilling to kill one of his own sheep. So he took the lamb of the man that only had one. David's anger was kindled greatly against the man. He said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And he confronts him. And this is God saying, I sent you to David to confront him and let him know. He may cover this up in the nation, but I know. And you may remember, David responds very well. He said, I have sinned against the Lord and he repents, and he turns back to God and asks for forgiveness. But Nathan really took his life in his hands to do that. It worked out well because David was a godly man and he repented, but if David had doubled down on this, he could have just killed Nathan. I mean, he's already killed Uriah. He's the king, it's easy enough to kill him. And so Nathan did what God said he should do even when it was dangerous to do it. Next story. I wanna take you now from the 10th century, think about 1000 BC, and I wanna move forward to about 850 BC. This is now, the nations have split in two, and in the northern part, there comes a king that's not a very good king at all, and he chooses not to follow God at all. So we're now about 850 BC. You'll know this story as well too. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab began to reign over Israel. So the Northern Kingdom, Solomon's dead, 
kingdom split, civil war. And Ahab reigned over Israel from his capital city, Samaria, 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than anybody who came before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, who is the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidonians, think Lebanon. So it's a Lebanese girl. And at that time, they worshiped Baal, who is a pagan god. He said he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. This is a Jew. He's building a temple to another god. And Ahab made an Asherah, a goddess. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who came before him. So what's happening in Israel at this time? You have a king who's leading the people astray. He's married a girl who's got strong-willed girl, decides we're gonna follow Baal, and he begins to uh, teach the people. He has all these prophets, priests of Baal, and they go out and they're evangelists, saying you should worship Baal. The king worships Baal, he's happy. Baal is gonna make us prosperous. And so the people in Israel began to worship Baal. Well, God sends a prophet to Ahab. His name is Elijah. Elijah didn't write any books, but God calls Elijah and says, I want you to go see Ahab. I want you to take a message for me. You tell Ahab it's not gonna rain until I say it's gonna rain. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because Baal is the God of rain. And so why is Ahab saying to the Israelites they need to worship Baal? He said, look, we need rain so we can have crops and we can prosper. And you know what? I just don't think Yahweh's getting it done. That's old God, old, old time. Baal is the up and coming new God. Baal is the God of rain. If we all worship Baal, if you guys will do this, I'm telling you, we're gonna have prosperity, peace and prosperity in the land, right? Interest rates will go down, homes will be affordable. It's gonna be great. So Elijah goes to him and he says, the Lord said it's not gonna rain until he said so. And then God says to Elijah, you need to leave town because this is gonna get ugly. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. Well. Let me tell you what that means. That means severe drought, severe famine, people are dying. Pretty quickly, Ahab says, we gotta find this guy Elijah and kill him. And they are looking everywhere. He sends assassins and hit squads everywhere looking for him to kill him. Can't find him. And the land's getting worse and worse. Well, this is a real political problem for Ahab. He's not gonna win re-election on this uh, platform, right? The economy's tanked, you know. Ahabonomics is not working. And so basically, he basically said, I told you to worship Baal, but it isn't working out, and we've got a major drought here. This is more than embarrassing. This is how revolts happen. So he's got a major political problem, and he thinks if I can kill Elijah, that this will stop. Somehow he thinks this is Elijah doing this. He doesn't even believe God is doing it. Well, three and a half years into this drought, God goes to Elijah, he said, hey, it's time for you to go back and talk to Ahab. And Elijah, he, he says, you know, Elijah's a smart guy and he says, you do realize he's trying to kill me. 
And you do realize as soon as I show up, he's gonna have me killed. God said, yeah, I know, I'm not worried. Go see Ahab. He goes, well, I'm worried, but I'll do it. And so he does, he goes to see Ahab. And this is what happens. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not been the one troubling Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel at Mount Carmel. Take the 450 prophets, preachers of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, the goddess. You got all this state religion, you bring them all together. And so they all came together People come to Mount Carmel. You may have heard this story. If not, please read it. That's, you'll see the citation up there. And basically, Elijah says to the people, listen, I'm here to call you back to God. You need to repent. You need to turn back to God from Baal. What are you gonna do? And the people were like, I don't know, not sure. So you may remember, he says, prophets of Baal, why don't you have fire come down from heaven? Well, they try and they try and they try and it doesn't. And then Elijah brings them over to him puts the sacrifice on there, prays to God, and fire comes down to heaven and burns the whole thing up. And the people go, we made up our minds. Yahweh is God, for sure. So back to the question that was asked. That is one way that God sometimes authenticated his message, but didn't always authenticate his message and didn't always authenticate his message in that way. But once again, I wanna show you another a theme that's running through this. Elijah was risking his life. He thought he was the only prophet of God left. And in fact, most of the people were not friendly to him and what he was preaching, and yet he did it anyway. He was scared to death. When you read this, you realize he is really scared. He is sure he's gonna die, but he does what God says anyway. And so at the risk uh, to his life, he confronts Ahab and God delivers. God comes through and uh, Elijah does not die. Now his life doesn't get any better because right after that, Jezebel says, you have ruined my whole plan. I'm gonna kill you. And he has to go hide again. But the point is he did what God told him to do. One of the themes that you'll see uh, run through this over and over, but this is a good place to talk about it is, one of the things prophets do, it's not so much they're doing miracles, it's not so much that they're preaching, uh, they're predicting the future, they are if God tells them to, right? But one of the things they do when they take God's message, particularly to the kings or to the governments, is prophets are known for speaking truth to power speaking truth to power. And speaking truth to people that are in power is always dangerous. You saw it with Nathan, he went and God told him, you just go tell David the truth, you did wrong. And you saw it with Elijah, go tell Ahab, you are doing wrong and I'm giving you a chance. I'm telling you who really controls the reign. Now, are you gonna repent or not? David repented. Ahab did not. Ahab doubled down and decided he'd still kill all the prophets of God. Either way, you see this, this theme of speaking God's truth to people in power. And that's something that's very much applicable today because we as Christians 
while we're not necessarily adversarial, we're not gonna show up at the White House steps and say, I'm here to speak truth to power, but you do, by your very lives, we also speak truth to the powers that be, the bales of our culture, the asherahs of our culture. By living a life that's obedient to God, you actually speak something that's true to the powers in our culture. This is a prophetic theme, and you see it, God's people have individually and corporately been called to speak God's truth even to the people in power. And so that's what you see these uh, prophets doing. Now I wanna take you to one more prophet, and you know this story, and this is a New Testament prophet. So in the New Testament, you're familiar with John the Baptist, and as the Gospels open, you see that John the Baptist was called by God, commissioned by God, and he was given a message. And you know what his message was? Repent because the kingdom of God is near. There is one coming after me who is so much greater than me, I'm not worthy to unleash uh, uh, the strap of his sandal. He's basically saying the Messiah is coming. It's time to repent. That's a prophet and he's giving a prophetic message. He's telling people what God told him to do. Does he know? how this is gonna play out, he has no idea how this is gonna play out. He doesn't have any more idea how it's gonna play out than Elijah did, or Nathan did. He's just being obedient to go tell uh, all the people what God told him to tell them. Well, one of the things he did <clears throat> was Herod, one of the Herod boys at this time, Herod the Great's dead, so this is about 30 AD. Herod's died uh, 32 or three years before that. And so John the Baptist comes and Herod's boys are on the throne. Well, they've got some family problems. They're, they put the dysfunction in dysfunctional family. I mean, their dad had two of their brothers killed, had one of his wives killed, but the boys are ruling different areas. Well, one of the boys stole the other boy's wife and they all claim to be Jews. And so John the Baptist said to him, it's not lawful read the law of Moses, this is sinful, you can't do this. Now Herod seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. This is Herod Antipas, his name is Antipas, and his brother's name is Philip. Herodias used to be Philip's wife, but now she's Antipas's wife. And John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to do this. And though he wanted to put him to death, he was afraid of the people because they knew he was a prophet. They, they could tell he is bringing the words of God. So he was afraid to kill him. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised, Herod's drunk as he can be, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she wants. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry but because he made this promise in front of all of his guests, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother and John's disciples came and took his body. So this, I wanted to include this story because it's the same theme. God has given a message to this selected individual, this prophet, to go speak truth to power. 
Nathan to David, Elijah to Ahab, and John to Herod. It worked out really well with David because he repented, he was a godly man. It worked out not so well for Elijah, but he lived, but he had to flee into exile because they were trying to kill him because Ahab was not a godly man. And it worked out very badly, in temporal terms anyway, for John, because Herod had him killed. And so the theme here is if you think about the prophets, they are speaking truth to power and it's a very risky business. And I wanna pause there and say, that's still true today. We still speak truth to power, not always with our mouths, but like I said, with our lives. You live your life differently than the prevailing cultural norms. And that's offensive. It's a way of speaking like this way of life is true without condemning anyone, you simply go about your business. And you remember Jesus did that too. And what happened to him? They killed him. For what? Breaking the law? No. And that can happen. And it happened to John the Baptist. It has happened to people in our world today, in Korea, in China, and other places in the world, for simply speaking the truth to power to the world. We do the same thing. Sometimes that is, quote, it's always successful. God's will is always done. Sometimes it works out well in the short term and sometimes it does not in the case of John the Baptist. And if you go on just a little bit, this is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, and then I skip down a little bit. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old, the prophets, received their commendation. In other words, we hold them in high regard. Why? Because of their faith. <clears throat> and what more shall I say? He goes through and he talks about people that believed God and it's kind of called the hall of faith. He says, what more can I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, think Daniel, quenched the power of fire, think his buddies, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Oh, and did I forget to mention, a lot of these people were tortured. Uh, others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's really interesting. <clears throat> he points this out. He says, some of the prophets, wow, major success story. Other prophets, whoa, did not go well. And his point is, they're all faithful. So from God's point of view, they're all successful because it's really about the faith that they had. And I just think it's interesting when you think about it. We, I, I sometimes think we get these images of prophets because we only read some of the stories. And I'd like us to get a broad feeling because you also operate in the prophetic tradition. I'm not telling you you're all prophets, you're gonna get a dream from God, or you're gonna predict the future, or they're gonna tell you to go speak truth to power. But we all live in the prophetic tradition of living out and speaking out what God told us to say. Does that make sense? That's why all these stories are so relevant today. You should put yourself in the place of these characters 
Because even though you may not be getting the word from God the way they did, I get the word of God from the New Testament that he gave to every one of us, and we go speak that message to the world. But we live in the prophetic tradition. So, what is the number one job requirement for a prophet? I'm gonna to suggest to you that the number one requirement for a prophet is courage. Courage, now there could be a lot of answers there, and I'll admit, this is just my personal opinion. But if you think about the stories that I've told you, what is the number one thing you need to be? It doesn't mean you're not afraid. Elijah was scared to death. Elijah, you would not have called Elijah a brave man, but he was, you know why? Because courage is not not being afraid. Courage is doing what is right even if you are afraid. And that's why all three of these examples were courageous people. Because even though they were afraid, they did what God said. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, because when I was reading about this and thinking, you know, over the past few months, I'm thinking about this and I think, yeah, they had a lot of courage. And I know that courage is not just something you're born with or you're not born with. Courage is doing what's right, what God has told you to do, even if you're afraid. But how can I have courage? How can I develop courage? And here's what I think the New Testament says about this. Fundamentally, courage, not just Christian courage, courage in general, courage in war, courage in a cause. I'm, I'm not gonna talk about Christianity for a second. Courage comes from believing in something greater than your present circumstances. I mean, if you think about people that showed courage in war, what was it that gave them that courage? They were afraid. They did things that weren't reasonable, meaning they gave their lives for a cause, for something. What, what's the common denominator? That courage comes from believing in something greater than your circumstances. And I'm gonna argue that the ultimate courage is, is so ultimately courage is faith in something, something greater than your circumstances. And I think you'll see, as we talk about the prophets, greatest courage comes from trusting God and having faith in the God who is greater. He's not just greater than my circumstances. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is the ruler of all of history. And so having faith, surprisingly, is the key to courage. Because courage doesn't mean you aren't afraid. It just means you believe in something even that's greater than your fear. Question? <clears throat> so by this definition, would Moses be considered a prophet? So I'm sorry, say that again. I didn't hear that out of the speaker. Uh, by this definition, would Moses be considered a prophet? Was Moses a prophet? Yes, definitely. Moses was considered to be the greatest prophet by the Jews. Abraham is the patriarch, the first Jew, the one who was faithful to God, but Moses was definitely considered to be the greatest of the prophets. And so in what sense was Moses a prophet? Well, he didn't do a lot of predicting the future. He didn't really know how this whole thing was gonna come out. God knew, Moses, this'll work better if I just tell you one step at a time. By the way, does God deal with you that way? Because he deals with me that way. It's like, why don't I just tell you the next thing? Because if I tell you the whole story, you're gonna be scared to death. But by the time we get there, you'll be fine. One step at a time. So yeah, Moses is a prophet in the sense that he is, uh, 
he's courageous to do what God told him. He said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He goes, I'll just tell you right now, I don't need to go see him, he's gonna say no. And he might kill me. And he goes, yeah, I know, but I want you to go anyway. It serves my purpose for you to go do this. So he had courage to do what God told him to do and to say what God told him to say. And the Jews consider him to be the greatest prophet. In the time of Jesus and earlier, did the Sanhedrin identify the prophets? I'm sorry, these speakers aren't on up here. Just go ahead. Did the Sanhedrin identify the prophets? Does the Sanhedrin identify the prophets? Uh, the Sanhedrin in the New Testament, well, a little bit before New Testament, but think New Testament time, Jesus is there. The Jews were ruled by the Romans ultimately. The Herod boys were the civil, in charge of all the civil thing. But when it came to the laws, the laws were still the law of Moses, and the Sanhedrin was a collection of 70 of the elders who would basically be the ruling body. And so the Sanhedrin at that time did want to certify prophets. They only wanted the company line to be said. That's why they didn't like John the Baptist. They wanted to kill John the Baptist. That's why they didn't like Jesus, and they tried to kill Jesus because he wasn't spouting the company line. So. From God's point of view, God picked the prophets. But yes, the rulers of the Jews in New Testament times wanted to control the message. And so if you wanna be a prophet, you gotta tout the company line. So that, obviously God didn't pay any attention to that, but the Jewish authorities at the time did want to control that message. They felt like they were the arbiters, if you will, of what God wanted to say to the people. And of course, God said, no, I think I'll talk for myself and I think I'll pick my own spokesperson. And so that's what you see God doing. And the same today. There are, I'll, I'll be careful how I say this because I really don't want to pick a fight with anybody, but there are Christian institutions that would like to speak for God, for Christianity. And some of them do speak what God wants to say, and some of them don't say what God wants to say. And at the end of the day, it's the same now as it was then. God decides who's actually speaking for him, and you can tell that by who speaks the words of what he has already told you in the New Testament. If it's consistent with that, then it's authentic in the sense, not authentic in the sense of God gave me a dream, but if a preacher gets up here on the stage, he's not telling you God gave me a special message for you. He's going to preach to you, he's gonna encourage you, he's gonna exhort you out of what? The Word of God. And as long as he's talking to you out of the Word of God, then that's authentic. And when he or she is not talking to you out of the Word of God, it may not be evil, but it's not from God. It's their own message. And it may be a useful message, but when we are in the prophetic tradition, we're speaking God's words to people, God's words to power. And so the lesson I wanted you to get out of this is that if you wanna be a prophet, if you wanna live, the, and I wanna argue that Christians are in the prophetic tradition, I would say if you wanna be a prophet or if you wanna be a Christian, you need to have courage. And you wanna know, well, do I? How can I? I'm like Moses, I'm not a strong, powerful person. That's okay, because faith, your faith in something greater than whatever circumstances you're in will give you the courage to do it. Think about those 12 ordinary men that Jesus picked. They didn't have a lot of mental horsepower. 
They were not the sharpest tools in the shed. They didn't have any credentials, and yet God said, go out there and tell everybody the good news. And how did they have the courage to do it? They were put in prison, they were beaten. They were all martyred, except John. I mean, they were all killed for what they were saying. How in the world could they have that kind of courage? Because they believed in something greater than their circumstances, that the God who sent them was real and that there was eternal life, that there's more than this world. Question. Do you have thoughts on why the Lord chooses in some circumstances to use an angel and other times a prophet to communicate with his people? Yeah, good question. So the means, and we'll talk more about this in the series because I want to survey not just the prophets, but how did God give them their message? You're going to find out God gave them their message in a lot of different ways. Sometimes Joseph, for example, how did God warn him about Herod going to kill all the babies in a dream? Uh, Joshua, God said to him, you're going to win this battle even though there's Joshua like, there's no way we're going to win this battle. God goes, you're going to win this battle. How did he tell him that? Through an angel, a messenger. And the word angel means messenger. And so this angelic being is sent as a messenger to him to convey this information. Others of these prophets didn't get any kind of supernatural thing. They just picked up the law of Moses and God put a burden on them. God chose, in fact, one of the words you'll see for God's calling in the Old Testament is the word for burden. God put a burden on them to say, you need to do what's right. You need to stop oppressing the poor. Here is the law of Moses where God said you should do this. There's nothing supernatural about that. They just took what God had already said. So there are a variety of ways that God communicates. But for us, the way God communicates is through the scriptures that he's given to us, the very word, the inspired word of God that we can all go repeat and tell people about. Okay? So you've been introduced to a few of the non-writing prophets, and what I'm gonna suggest to you is the, the great qualification is courage, and courage comes from having faith in God who is bigger not only than your circumstances, he's bigger than death. Even if you die, you will live. When you believe that, there is nothing God cannot do with us. No matter how great you are, how small you are, how capable we are, how incapable, how old you are, how young you are, makes no difference. That's the essential qualification, and that's true for you and me. I remember a quote that was attributed to Napoleon the, uh, the Great. So you guys remember Napoleon? He said, uh, or he's reported to have said, he said, I would rather face an army of 30,000 men than one Calvinist who believed he was doing the will of God. That happened to be the problem at his time. But think about that. Is he said, I'd rather face 30,000 men than one Christian who thought he was doing the, word, the will of his God because they're unstoppable. They're not afraid of death. Those 30,000 soldiers, I might scare them. I might kill some of them and the rest of them will run. That Christian, no way. Does that make sense? That's the power of God in this world is the courage we have from the faith that animates us. So we're gonna look at some great stories. We're gonna look at some visions, oh my goodness, that are so crazy and wild that they got. We're gonna look at some situations that turned themselves around. We're gonna look at themes of justice. We're gonna look at themes of worship. 
but we're gonna go explore the prophets, many of them you've never met before. And so next week, we'll dive into some of the minor prophets, because I just don't feel like they've gotten enough attention. I don't think it's all about book sales. I think they did some remarkable things, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Thanks, guys.